Good morning. It's good to see you all here in the house of the Lord. I'll second everything that has, has gone before. Certainly much appreciated it. And I would like to consider a passage of Scripture from Genesis, the 25th chapter. We'll begin reading in the 19th verse. And of course, this, as you will see, this passage of Scripture um, concerns the life of Jacob. And we will consider several events in his life and, and hopefully build up to a moment that we will spend the majority of our time upon this morning. Begin reading in verse 19th chapter, um, in the 19th verse, we are told, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padaram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Immediately in the early stages of the life of Jacob, we understand that his narrative, the narrative of his life, is going to be characterized by struggle. Jacob means the supplanter. His brother Esau, who struggled with him in the womb, he is entitled as Esau because his name means rough. And we'll come to find out that he was a rough man. We're told that when he came out of the womb, he was covered with red hair, as it were, a garment. Just as a small infant... He comes out of the womb as a very red and very hairy young child. And that's going to characterize his entire life. We're told later on that he grew up to be a cunning hunter. He lived outdoors in the wild. He went about hunting, spending his time in the land, spending his time outdoors. And Jacob, his brother, he was the stay-at-home son, if you will. He was the one who stayed in tents. And we read about, even when they are in the womb this struggle that is going to characterize their life together. Now, I want to think about this struggle for just a minute. Because this analogy, this, this tale of these two brothers, is used to illustrate to us some spiritual truths about the world, about children of God. Because we understand that the child of God is engaged in a struggle on a daily basis. They are engaged in a struggle with exterior forces. They're engaged with the people around them. They're engaged with their own lusts and desires. And they are continually fighting against those. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. So Jacob, much like the child of God, even in the womb, he's engaged in this struggle. And we see this struggle manifested in many different ways in, in the media, the literature of history, the ideologies that we often come across. Think about many of the popular maybe movies we consume, the books we consume. 
many times their main plot line is this struggle between good and evil. You've got a good character and you've got a bad character and they're pitted against each other. And they're struggling the entire time. That's appealing to us. That plot line is very appealing to us. That is the reason most of the time, you know, the good comes out on top. The evil is subjected to the good. We identify with that. That resonates with our spirits. Because in our minds and hearts on a daily basis, we are experiencing that. We are experiencing that controversy. That difficult struggle between the Spirit of God within our hearts, the way that God has worked in our lives and that work that He will continue to do, and the evil that surrounds us. And it is difficult oftentimes. And the people that have you know, written those, those um, plot lines, that have written the books that we read that talk about that struggle between good and evil in a general way, Many times they have also experienced that. And they understand that on a daily basis we are confronted with this battle. And Jacob's life will continue to be characterized by this struggle. He goes on and he deceives his brother into giving him his rightful inheritance as the elder brother for a bowl of lentils or a bowl of beans. Now, I would probably be dumb enough to surrender my inheritance to someone if I was starving to death. But I would think that I wouldn't be dumb enough to give it to someone for a bowl of beans. Maybe a steak dinner. Maybe a biscuit. You know, I love biscuits. I love steak. I love uh, mashed potatoes. I love all these other traditional southern foods that we consume. But for a bowl of beans, Esau, he says, sure, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. And he surrenders his birthright to Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, for this bowl of beans. He swears to Jacob that he would give his, his birthright to him. And needless to say, this is not the type of activity which promotes familial harmony. He, Esau eventually realizes what he's done. And he grows angry at Jacob. And furthermore... Jacob decides with the help of his mother to go before his dying father who is now blind and again deceive his father and deceive Esau. And you know, his father Isaac imparts to him this special blessing that was generally given to the eldest son. So Jacob has deceived Esau in a very major way twice. And because of this, he, immediate, he has to leave the area. He has to leave Esau's presence because he's made Esau angry because he's deceived him. So he leaves. And as he's leaving, as he's fleeing from the area, he has another experience, which is certainly noteworthy. And he encounters, he has a vision of God. He has a dream. And in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10... And Jacob goes out from Beersheba and goes toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, 
and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob, he's running from Esau. And I'm sure he is unaccustomed to this type of behavior. Esau would no doubt have been fine laying out in the middle of this plain with rocks for his pillow, exposed to the elements. And he no doubt would have slept well. But Jacob's fleeing from Esau. And he lights upon this place and he tarries there all night. And he takes rocks and he uses them as a place to rest his head. Now this word pillow has a specific significance. It's a symbol of dominance many times. It's a symbol of headship. As the highest part of the body, oftentimes in Scripture, the head is represented as a symbol of power, as a symbol of dominance. And Jacob, he takes, he, in the following verses, after he has this miraculous vision from God, where he sees this ladder ascending up to heaven, where the Lord stands at the top of it, and these angels ascending and descending up and down that ladder, he takes that symbol of dominance and he offers it as an offering to the Lord. And he rose up early in the morning, after he'd had this vision, and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. He commemorates this spot by entitling it as Bethel, which means the house of God. Because he understood that the Lord had manifested himself in a special way to him that night. He had shown him a special vision unlike anything that he had ever seen. And he poured oil upon this pillar. We understand that the church, the house of God, is entitled as the pillar and and ground of the truth. This pillar that he places commemorating the vision that he saw is a special item which is meant to denote the fact that God manifested himself in a special way to Jacob there at that time. He ascended to earth. And that pillar, not only is it an item which commemorated the house of God, it is also a representation of Jesus Christ in that He is entitled as the cornerstone of Zion. He is the stumbling block, the chief cornerstone that upholds the city of God, Zion itself, in a very direct way. That cornerstone that they would take, whenever they constructed an ancient building, it was a little bit different than the way we construct buildings today. We take a concrete, we take a form, a board form, and we pour concrete inside of it, and we make a solid foundation. But many times when they constructed a building, they would have several stones, among which a cornerstone that they would place at the corner of each building, and that stone would uphold that structure. Christ is that stone for us here this morning. 
He is the stone which upholds the church of God. He is the one upon which the structure of truth, the structure in which truth is contained, the house of God rests upon. And Jacob notes that because he takes this stone that he had once used as his pillow, that he had once used to rest upon, and he sets it in this location as a way to commemorate the fact that God visited earth in that very place. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, came down to Jacob in this place and showed himself to him. In a symbolic sense, Jacob, he takes that stone and he sets it there and he says, I will entitle this place as Bethel, the house of God. And he pours oil upon it. No doubt, the oil that he would have used to prepare his food or light his fires as he went about on his journey. And he takes that oil and he pours it upon that stone. And he delivers somewhat of an ultimatum to the Lord. Now there is a point, there is a reason we're considering this, um, this chapter, this moment. And Jacob vows a vow in Genesis 28 and verse 20. And he says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Jacob, he says, well, I understand that I have witnessed, I have witnessed God ascend to earth in a symbolic way. I've seen this stone. You know, I've seen this, this moment where angels have ascended and descended up and down this ladder. The Lord has declared that he will be with me throughout my generations. My seed shall be as the, the stars of the sea and the sands of the heaven as he prophesied to Abraham his forebearer, and he'll preserve my children and he'll bring me again into this land. But he says, if God will be with me and if he will keep me in this way and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, then shall the Lord be my God. A little bit of a controversial attitude, a little bit of an um, interesting attitude for Jacob to have considering the vision that he has just experienced. And we go on throughout the story of Jacob, and his life does not get any easier. He goes on to his, uh, his relative's house, and there he meets a young woman named Rachel. And he immediately sees that, that she is a woman to be desired. He falls in love with her, as we would say. And he labors seven years for her hand in marriage. And at that time, essentially, his relative backstabs him and gives him his older daughter, who was not as desirable, who knew Jacob didn't care anything about, but he's deceived into marrying her after working seven years. So guess what he decides to do? I'll work another seven years just to get Rachel. And we can go on and we can see the fact that he has children with, and Rachel was barren, despite the fact that he labored for her. She wasn't able to have children. He has children with Leah. He has children with two of his wives' servants, and then finally, he conceives Joseph and Benjamin with Rachel. And eventually, even in, in, in keeping with his former behavior, in a very sly, deceitful way, he deceives Laban 
take some of his flocks. And Laban's sons and Laban grow angry at him and he has to flee once again. And he finds himself, after he is resolved with um, things with Laban, he finds himself in a situation where he is going to be forced to confront Esau, his brother. The reason we've went through all this is because I hope in some way you will see the, the course of Jacob's life. He has been on many different paths, paths of deception, deceit, trouble, familial difficulty, controversy. He has not lived the, the ideal whitewashed life of a hero as we would conceive of, of a hero. He's full of a great degree of moral ambiguity. He's not above lying to people. He's not above deceiving people. He's full of flaws. He's full of issues, sin, sin. And he comes to this point where he is forced to confront probably one of his own greatest fears. He's forced to confront Esau. And we're told in chapter 32 that Jacob was, in verse 7, that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed upon finding out that he would have to meet his brother Esau. And he wrote, he, at one point, he sends his family on before him, and he remains alone behind his family, behind, behind, the, ones, behind the ones that he loves. And as no doubt he's, he's sitting there thinking, and he's sitting there thinking about what he's going to have to do the next day, he wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day. And he saw when he prevailed not against, and, and he wrestled with this man to such a great extent. He was so persistent that when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. I want to be able to, con- I wish I was able to convey to you probably the, the, overwhelming emotions that Jacob was dealing with at this time. He has been on a long and wandering and winding path to bring him to this place. He has dealt with betrayal. He has betrayed his number of people. And finally, it has all come to a head because he is forced to face the very thing which no doubt has haunted him for the entirety of these chapters, the brother that he betrayed, the father that he deceived, he is about to have to confront that. And he sends his family up in front of him. He remains alone, no doubt, to think about his circumstance. And he wrestles with this man. He wrestles with this mysterious individual. We don't know who he is yet. He wrestles with him in the same way that we often wrestle with the principalities and powers and the spiritual darkness which confronts us on a daily basis. And he struggles with him. And he can't seem to prevail. Because I will tell you today that unwittingly in the darkness of this night, in the very moment when he would be forced to face his greatest fears, he wrestled with the pre-incarnate Christ. He wrestled with the one whose identity was unknown. He wrestled with the one who was to come and walk upon this earth and offer up his very body as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. But he could not prevail. Guess what? He was persistent. He would not relinquish his hold 
upon this man. And the man says to him, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. He says, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou hast power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Jacob has wrestled with man. Now he has wrestled with God. And the message is, I've, we have reached this point with little time remaining. But I will say this succinctly. As children, those who are of Israel are those who will wrestle with God and man. And as we wrestle with the principalities and the powers on the one hand, and oftentimes our own faithlessness on the other, we will be faced with a decision. We will be faced with a decision to either tighten our hold upon the Lord or to let Him go. Jacob has come to this point in his life. His deceit has finally caught up with him. He may potentially lose everything he has, including his life. And this man wrestles with him. God wrestles with him. And he refuses to let him go until the Lord would bless him. Because there is a manifest blessing for those that would hold on to Christ with persistency even in the midst of difficulty. I think that's a message. In times such as these, I've, I've almost not really even known what to say about them anymore. Because I feel like even as, even as one period draws to a close, even as one difficulty you know, subsides and things go back to normal, another rears its head. You know, as, as one, one version of this affliction you know, sort of disappears and fades away into history, you know, another, another comes up to face us. Jacob, Jacob was in this situation. He's deceived. He's lied. He's cheated. He's labored, but yet the Lord's blessed him. He's blessed him with flocks. He's best blessed him with family. And yet, as he's leaving to go back to the land of his fathers, he's faced with the final decision. He's faced with another difficulty. And the way that he dealt with it, when he came to that moment where he was going to have to make this final choice and he wrestles with God, he no doubt was wrestling with his own fears and doubts at the same time. But suddenly he realized, this man, this God that I delivered this ultimatum to, the one that I told, well, I'll serve you if you'll bless me. He's the only one that can help me. When I'm cast down in my despair and my fear over what's going to happen when the sun comes comes up and I'm forced to face Esau, he's the only one that's able to deliver me. And the way that he deals with that is he lays hold upon the Lord and he refuses to let him go. Because the Lord's not going to let you go. He has you in his eternal hand. No man is more powerful than him. No man will take you from his hand. But I will tell you, submit to you this morning that oftentimes our hold grows weak. We grow weary and our fingers begin to slip. And what we ought to do is we ought to lay hold on Him with a renewed fervency. Because the current of the world may sweep us away. Our arms may grow tired. Our, our, 
Legs may grow faint. You know, we may stumble and we may fall. But we are to lay hold upon Him with renewed fervency. We're to lay hold of... We're to, the Savior holds us in His arms and will not let us go. But we are to hold our Savior in our arms. You know why? As the song says, because we're so delighted with His charms, there is no other good that we know. Thank you for your time.